In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Very, very weak day for the stock market, particularly the way it closed. So it doesn't bode too well uh, for tomorrow. The Dow is down 457 points. In fact, about 57 points of that was added in the last minute of trading. So we had a lot of stocks that just closed on the lows of the day. You know, the the weakest segment of the market all day continues to be the financials. And I have been pointing that out on this podcast. You know, if the financials are this sick, I don't see how anybody could think the economy is healthy. Look at Wells Fargo again today, down another 3%. But more importantly, it's at a new low. It closed at 24.04, four cents off the $24 low. But we've now taken out the March low on that particular stock. But, you know, the broader uh, index, the uh, regional banks, they were down 5% on the day. So this, again, is indicative of just how sick this economy really is. And anybody who thinks we're going to get this recovery, this big V-shape, is completely uh, dreaming. There's no way that's going to happen. It's just not even possible. Uh, But I think that V-shape narrative was, was pretty... Uh, powerful in helping to fuel uh, that bounce that we had in the stock market, that bear market rally, which again continues to look more and more uh, like it's over. And we're now uh, going down once again to either retest the lows or potentially take out those lows. Uh, and we'll see what the Fed is willing to do 
uh, to try to prevent that from happening or you know, make sure that at least if we do retest the lows, that the retest is a success. You know, we did get some economic data that came out today. We got the consumer price index uh, for April. And as expected, consumer prices dropped rather sharply on the month, 0.8% decline. Um, that was the consensus, and it was double the decline that we had uh, in the previous month. Year over year, the CPI is up just 03 Uh, So it's still positive, right? Prices haven't fallen, so they can't claim deflation, you know, for the year. Uh, But we have a slight increase in prices of 0.3%. This, I think, is the lowest year-over-year CPI, I think, since the financial crisis of 2008. But obviously, it's not a bad thing when prices rise more slowly. The only thing better is when prices fall or don't rise at all. Right. Rising prices is only good if you're a, a government economist or a central banker and you're trying to convince everybody that inflation is great and that we need inflation uh, to survive. And that somehow if it's not high enough, it's an emergency and the Fed needs to pull out all the stops. Uh, if you pulled out food and energy, then the decline was not nearly as great. The core CPI was down 0.4. Obviously, we had a big decline in energy. Uh, because of gas prices collapsing. Now, we know food prices actually went up a little bit, uh, so that worked in the other direction, but we had a complete collapse in gas prices, uh, so uh, gas prices went down. But does that mean that it was a huge benefit to American consumers who, who stayed at home, who sheltered in place and didn't even bother going to work? So it's not like a lot of people got a big benefit of cheaper gas that they didn't even buy, uh, so it really didn't deliver uh, much of a of a of a of a of a you know lift to the consumer getting a break on his gas prices, but still, even if you take out food and energy, prices were down. But remember, you had certain prices like airline tickets; it's just collapsed. I, I think I reported on my podcast that they were selling one way tickets between San Juan and Boston for like three dollars or six dollars. I mean, some completely ridiculous price. So when you have these plunging air prices or ticket prices, that's going to impact the CPI. But again, what difference did that make to the people who weren't flying, right? Yes, if you happen to be one of the few Americans who boarded a plane uh, during the month, then you got a pretty good break on your ticket, you know, provided you were willing to worse, uh, risk rather getting COVID-19. But whatever, if you, if you braved it and went out on a plane, uh, yeah, you got a really cheap ticket. But probably any place that you went, I mean, there really wasn't that much to do entertainment-wise. So I don't even know how valuable a ticket is when you go when you can't do anything uh, when you arrive at your destination. So probably the only people traveling, you had an important uh, uh, meeting that you had to be in person, or it was maybe a medical emergency, maybe something a family member was sick or dying, and you absolutely had to go and be with them. But you know, I think most people were not traveling if they didn't absolutely have to do it. Uh, and, uh, you know, so yeah, those people got a little bit of a cheaper ticket, but you know, when you hear all of the coverage of the CPI, right? Oh, whoa, this is down. You know, this is dangerous, right? This is deflation. Consumer prices are falling. The fed needs to do something about it. Why would we want the fed to do something about a good thing, right? If the cost of living is going down, I don't need to be saved from that. I don't need the fed to protect me. 
uh, from a lower cost of living. I want a lower cost of living. The less things cost, the more I can buy, right? Or the harder I have to work to buy the things I want. I mean, it's a win-win. You know, even the, the producers, the businesses benefit from falling prices because when prices are falling, it also means that their costs are probably falling. That's why prices are falling. After all, one person's uh, price is another person's cost. What makes uh, businesses is volume, volume and margins. And if you can get consumer prices coming down and because the price goes down, you sell more units, which is basic supply and demand. As price goes down, demand goes up. So if price is going down and now the businesses can sell more of the product, they can actually make more money with lower prices. So don't believe the nonsense uh, by the inflation promoters that businesses can't succeed if prices are falling. Yeah, tell that to the cell phone manufacturers. They're selling a lot more cell phones and making a lot more money now than they were 30 years ago when it cost a couple thousand dollars to get a cell phone that was the size of a shoebox, right? They're making a lot more money now selling them for 99 bucks or four or 500 bucks uh, than they were back then. And of course, the phones can do a lot more now than, than they did uh, originally. So, but the, the media is going to jump on this CPI as proof that the Fed can keep printing money, that we don't have to worry about the bailouts. We don't have to worry about the deficits. We can do whatever we want because the Fed has a lot of cushion that we have this big leeway that maybe one day down the road in the distant future, inflation may rear its ugly head and eventually be a problem, but it's not a problem now. We don't have to worry about it anytime soon. So just, yeah, just keep on printing money, keep on stimulating. And, you know, even if the stimulus results in some more inflation, well, that's a good thing because we can need some more inflation because right now we got falling prices and supposedly that's real bad. And so if we end up with rising prices, and we get to run these big deficits to give everybody checks. Well, that's a twofer. We get stimulus that we want and we get higher inflation that we want, right? It's a win-win. Of course, in reality, it is a lose-lose. Uh, and prices are going to rise much faster than people think. And I think much sooner than people think. Because look, yes, in the early stages of this crisis, you had a big collapse in demand. Uh, and you still had a lot of supply left over. And so prices went down, especially, you know, when you have companies, you know, that, that have all this extra inventory, they didn't have a chance to adjust to it. And so they got to move the merchandise. So they're slashing prices, you know, going out of business sales. So a lot of things got cheap. But as the market adjusts, as businesses and entrepreneurs reduce production, which they've already done, reduce production uh, and they supply fewer goods and services into the market, you work off that inventory hang. And now all of a sudden, a supply glut turns into a supply shortage. And then across some of the demand comes back, not all of the demand, but some of the band's gonna come back. But the problem is the supply of goods and services is gonna contract more uh, than uh, the demand for those goods and services. So prices are gonna be moving up rather dramatically when we walk, work through the inventory overhang and businesses have a chance to shut down some capacity and reduce and get prepared for, uh, you know, less demand. And so they have less supply, you know, and when, as I said, the restaurants start cutting back and when they start reopening, we're only going to have, you know, half the seats or a third of the seats. If you want one of those seats, it's going to be a lot more money because the restaurant tours are going to have to charge the customers for a lot more because there's not as many customers 
over which to spread the overhead. So you have fewer customers and the owner has to cover all of his overhead, all his cost on a smaller base of customers. So it's higher prices. Those low airfares that I mentioned about, they're going to be replaced by sky high airfares because there's not going to be a lot of planes flying around. And so uh, even though there'll be fewer people flying, they're going to be bidding for even fewer seats. And so on a supply and demand uh, relationship, you're going to see a big move up in uh, in airline prices. I think energy prices are actually going to come up. Uh, the gas price might not as much as maybe natural gas. You know, oil, oil gas, oil gas prices, I think, are going to go up a lot. Uh, that's more domestic supply. We, we're not importing. Same thing with home heating oil. I think we could see a big surge in home heating oil prices as early as this coming winter. Uh, so that's going to really, uh, you know, uh, put a put a, a a damper on consumer spending, especially if we're you know back with the second wave of the virus by then. Uh, but I think the initial effect that of a price decline to cushion the blow is going to be gone. In fact, that's what we're going to see in the next leg down, right? Because obviously we're going to have some kind of a bounce off the second quarter low. I mean, there's no question about it that we're going to get a bounce. It's not going to bounce us all the way back up to where we started, but it will take us off the lows. But then, of course, my expectation is that the economy rolls over and we take out the bottom of what people thought was going to be a V. It isn't even going to be a U. It's going to be a lopsided W, whatever, because the line is going to keep on falling. Because what's going to happen is a lot of employees who got called back to work, they're going to end up being refired because their bosses are going to realize that they didn't need the, the, the workers. And so you're going to have that uh, relapse back into depression, right? The only thing we're going to recover to potentially is a normal recession, right? Because even if we have big growth, we're, we're still going to be below where we started. So we're not going to get out of recession. It may look like we're out of depression uh, until we're right back in there. And of course, then that's going to bring us uh, uh, to the election because we're going to have the election right in the middle of potentially a fall we back, uh, uh, relapse rather in November. But right now, the, the Democrats are really upping the ante on the stimulus. And I think it's going to make it harder and harder for the Republicans to stand in the way between the voters and all this free stuff that the Democrats are promising. In fact, you know, you've got people talking about how bad the economy is, right? It's This recession is so bad. And of course, it's nobody's fault, which makes it all the more reason why everybody needs a bailout because the coronavirus, if it's anybody's fault, it's China's fault. It's not the fault of anybody here in America. So nobody should have to suffer something that wasn't their fault. So the government needs to give everybody money. And what they're saying is that the crisis is so bad, it doesn't matter how much it costs. It doesn't matter what we spend. We just have to keep passing government programs. We got to spend whatever it takes, right? We got to borrow as much as it takes. We can't be concerned about the deficit or the costs because the most important thing is to just get us out of this horrible recession and so we just need to spend as much as possible, whatever it takes to get out. And then we'll ask about the cost later. But what one of the things that that overlooks, the most important thing is that government spending doesn't make the economy stronger. It actually makes the economy weaker. So to say the economy is really weak, so we need to spend as much, pos as much money as possible to get us out of it, you're actually making the problem worse. That's, that's what happens because if government spends money, where are they getting the money to spend? Where are they getting those resources? They're getting them from the private sector. Whatever the government spends, the private sector can't spend. The only time government spending 
would improve the economy is if the, the, this money is spent in a way that increases productivity. So maybe if the money is spent to have a good judicial system that protects private property and therefore protects entrepreneurs and inventors and, you know, and, and it makes it uh, the market more efficient or we cut down on crime. And so the market is more uh, productive, uh, you know, or the government, uh, you know, or the government generally on a local level uses government money efficiently. Maybe the roads run smoother so we can have uh, better traffic or, you know, a, a, a better flow of cars and less fewer accidents. And, you know, we can reduce commute time or any other infrastructure that government can provide. Now, of course, you know, you could argue that that infrastructure could have been provided in the private sector. If the government didn't provide it, the private sector might have. And in most cases, that's the case. Uh, but at least the government is doing something with the money. Uh, even if it's not doing something as efficiently as the free market would. But when the government simply spends money, right, just takes money or just gives money to people like it's doing right now uh, with the CARES Act or uh, with um, the, the, the the PPP bailouts, the government's just handing out money. And, and so where's that coming from? Any Any spending that is going to result from that money is at the expense of other spending that can't take place because the money has lost value and prices have gone up, right? The government is not uh, helping the economy. The government is hurting the economy. It's the spending that's the burden. It's the spending that amounts to the taxation. So the more the government spends, the more the government burdens the economy. And the weaker the economy is, uh, the less capable it is of, of, of bearing that burden. And so we're basically kicking the economy when it's down, when we e increase government spending during a recession. But apparently this recession is so bad that there's no limit to how much we should spend, which is why we'll never get out of it, why it's going to be a depression. But it is providing this mantra uh, where, you know, spare no expense, right? And in fact, you've got a number of Democrats that have already signed on to an enhanced version of the Andy Yang uh, basic income plan. Uh, this plan, and there's, I think, a few versions of it, but they share a lot. You know, most of them have the key points the same. And that is that every adult, and an adult is 16 or older. So if you're 16 years old, you qualify. So every adult is going to get $2,000 a month for an undisclosed or indefinite time period. Just whenever we decide that the crisis is over or the unemployment rate is back uh, to normal. So, but there's no actual sunset, right? It's until somebody in government decides uh, that it's time to take away the $2,000 a month. Now, of course, once you give somebody $2,000 a month, politically, it's very hard to take it away, right? And in fact, if you, you have a vested interest in perpetuating the crisis, if that's the only way to keep the $2,000 a month checks coming, uh, but think about a 16-year-old getting $2,000 a month. I mean, why? I mean, most 16-year-olds are still living with their parents. Why do they need $2,000 a month? They don't have any rent to pay. They, you know, they don't, they don't have any, uh, any, any credit card debt yet. They don't have any student loans yet. They, they're not even out of high school. I mean, why are you going to start lavishing $2,000 a month on 16- and 17-year-olds? That doesn't make any sense. I mean, maybe if, if they're emancipated and they're living a, you know, on their own. But no, it doesn't you know, make any uh, consideration effect. It doesn't, it doesn't even matter whether you're working or not working. You get the money, whether you're employed or unemployed. 
doesn't matter. The only limitation on who gets the money is how much you're already earning, right? So they don't want to give the $2,000 a month to people who are earning $150,000 a year. But if you're only earning $75,000 a year, then they're going to give you the money. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp h-e-l-p.com slash gold say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill Right. And, and and so there is no criteria. Everybody gets it. I mean, what what's the rationale? If I didn't lose my job because of uh, COVID-19, then what's the basis for giving me even more money? Doesn't make any sense. Right. The people who didn't lose their jobs as prices have come down they, if, to the extent that they have come down, you you know, you're in better shape. And certainly, you know, housing prices are coming down if you were thinking about buying a house and you still want to do that, they're cheaper, right? You can, you know, you can pay less money. So if you didn't lose your job, I mean, maybe you even got a raise. Maybe you work for a company that is actually really busy uh, during uh, th this time period, and you actually got a raise. You're actually making more money than you were before COVID-19. Why should you get $2,000 a month? I mean, it makes no sense. Of course, why should anybody get money for nothing, right? Nobody should get it. 
But then it gets more and more absurd as you start rewarding people who are actually better off today than they were before COVID-19 came around, right? But the Democrats are really pushing this. And the Republicans so far are pushing back and say, no, 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 this is ridiculous. But I don't think they really have the moral ground for this fight since they've already conceded so much of it uh, in what they've already passed in the CARES Act and the PPP and the bailouts and everything they're doing. You've already kind of acknowledged that we need government stimulus. We need to get government money into the economy. So what better way to put it into the economy than through uh, the hands of ordinary Americans? I mean, you're so in favor of bailing out the big banks, bailing out Fortune 500 companies. Why do you regret uh, average Americans uh, having this money. And then they start turning into a racial issue because, oh, you know, you're denying people in the inner cities uh, who are disproportionately impacted, of minorities, uh, you know, disproportionately, disproportionately, uh, or disproportionately, excuse me, uh, 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 you know, be, being hurt by the coronavirus. So they, they, they turn it into all sorts of things. In fact, I think COVID-19 is really the best thing to ever happen to socialists. I think it's better than climate change, right? They love climate change, right? Because climate change let them create this boogeyman that the government needs to save us from. And all these new big government programs, these Green New Deal programs, they're all couched in that language of we got to save the environment, we got to save the planet, right? From, you know, climate change. But really, it's a distraction. It's trying to give a benevolent purpose to what they want to do, which is, you know, increase the size of government, have, uh, you know, lessen individual liberty and freedom and have a, a stronger a central government uh, that, you know, that they control. And so when they can claim that, oh, we need all this government because otherwise, you know, we're all going to die from climate change, that that provides the motivation because otherwise people wouldn't agree to it, right? People who oppose the socialist program, uh, if you don't have the climate change, their aspect of it, they're, they're not going to go along with it. But once you tie it to climate change, say, hey, this, this is necessary to save the planet, right? The government is going to save us from this menace, this threat. But the only way we can do it is if we, you know, pass this agenda, you'll get people to support that agenda who, absent the threat of the climate change, wouldn't have done it. So the, the leftists, the, the socialists are able to use environmentalism as a way, a backdoor way to get in socialism, to get in more government because they hold it as, as the solution. And of course, they blame climate trades on capitalism. Climate, So it's greedy corporations that are causing the climate change. They're destroying the planet just to make a buck. And so it's the government that's going to save the planet. And we're going to do it with socialism. But don't, don't mind that. Just, you know, we're going to save the planet. And it, it works. But I think COVID-19 is even better, right? I mean, climate change is going to take a backseat to, to uh, COVID-19, right? Because I think this is a, a threat that people can see more clearly. I think there's still a lot of people that didn't necessarily buy into the whole climate change or whether or not it was man-made or how it would impact us or if we could even do anything about it. Right? <clears throat> even if we changed our lifestyle and the rest of the world didn't, it wasn't even going to matter. But I think this COVID-19, this is a threat that a lot more people can appreciate, wrap their arms around and really understand because they've heard stories. People have died. Right. And, and, and now we've had all of this, you know, scare tactics, fear mongering about this particular disease that a lot of people are very, very nervous about catching it. 
And you've also created a situation where a lot of people now are financially benefiting from the disease because they're not having to work or they're not having to pay rent, uh, but they're getting checks from the government that are bigger than the ones they used to earn when they worked honestly and got the check from their employer. So you're, you're creating a big government threat, right? Or a big threat for the government to protect us from COVID-19, right? This pandemic, we're all gonna get sick and die, right? Forget about uh, climate change, that's gonna kill us eventually. COVID-19 is gonna kill us right now. And so we really need socialism. We need complete government control. You have to surrender all of your rights to the government in order to be safe from this disease and people are buying into it, especially if you're also bribing them at the same time. Hey, give government all this power, surrender all your liberties. And by the way, you're going to get $2,000 a month. Oh, and your wife's going to get $2,000 a month and your kid, you guys are going to make a lot more money. Just make this deal with the government. Just give up your freedom and your liberty and you're going to make all this extra money, right? And people are dumb enough to buy it. So I think the left is going to milk this crisis as long as they can you know, they want to delay any kind of so-called reopening as long as possible. They want to elongate the crisis so they can have a bigger opportunity to grab more power and deny more in individual liberty and to get more and more of the socialist agenda through Congress. Now, some of the Republicans may, uh, you know, be against this. They may stop this from passing while Trump is president. But obviously, if the Democrats can keep the crisis going, keep the fear alive long enough to elect uh, Biden and a Democratic Senate, then all of this stuff is going to pass in 2021, right? All this stuff that the Republicans are, are blocking because they have the Senate, right? Assuming they continue to block it, which I'm not sure they will, but whatever they do block will be unblocked when they lose the Senate, right? And if, you know, we still have the fear, right? Because this... This, uh, you know, COVID-19 is really allowing uh, the socialist agenda to gain even more traction. It gives the left a very, very easy lane, right, to divert people into um, about this. And so they're going to keep playing this up. And it's a very, very scary time, not just because of the economics of it, but the politics. And the politics are ultimately going to drive the economics because the politics are going to make it worse. They're going to put more pressure on the Fed to print even more money. In fact, you know, today there were, I don't know, two or three different guys from the Fed that came out and talked today. And they were trying to kind of downplay the expectation of negative Fed funds, which the markets now have priced in uh, for early 2021, negative Fed funds rate, first time ever. And you have some Fed guys that were saying, look, you know, we really don't like negative rates, really don't want to go there. So they didn't basically draw a line in the sand and said it's never going to happen. Uh, but they did, you know, indicate that they didn't think it was a good idea, right? But they didn't take it off the table. But then Donald Trump came out and he tweeted and he said that we, we, we should not uh, turn down this gift of negative rates. Like if we're lucky enough to be blessed with the gift of negative interest rates, we should not look that gift horse in the mouth. We should just take the gift and be grateful to have it, right? As if, you know, this is free money. And, you know, from Donald Trump's perspective, right, as a debtor, right, as a, he, he borrows a lot of money, he uses a lot of leverage in his personal life to build his real estate empire. But so he always thinks about things from that perspective, from that vantage point. And so from the point of view of somebody who's always borrowing money, Low interest rates, negative interest rates are a gift, 
Why are they a gift? Because the lender is being paid to borrow. You're actually being given money to borrow money, right? You're not having to pay to borrow. You're being paid to borrow. So that payment is really a gift. You're getting that money for free. All you have to do is borrow. In fact, you don't have to do anything with the money. You can borrow it and just hold the cash and just give it back, right? You don't have to take any risk. You just get paid, right? So it is a gift. And Donald Trump is like, hey, why should we turn down a gift? Let's just be humble and accept the gift, right, from the money gods. Except it's not a gift for everybody. It's a gift for some people. But who is on the losing end? Who is giving that gift? Involuntarily, I may add. And those are the lenders, right? If people are getting the gift of negative interest rates, who is giving them that gift? The people who are paying the negative interest rates. That would be the uh, saver. <clears throat> so the saver is being punished. So is everybody in America a debtor? No, there are net. There are some net savers here. There are people who are uh, having money taken away from them so that others can get a gift. Uh, so it's not a gift. And especially if the only way to keep interest rates negative is for the Federal Reserve to print a lot more money to buy up the bonds into negative territory because no you know, right-minded person would, would use their own money uh, to uh, buy negative-yielding bonds and give a gift uh, to the U.S. government. So if the Fed is the one that's going to give that gift, well, beware of uh, central bankers bearing gifts because where is the gift coming from? They're printing the money. They're creating inflation. They're stealing your purchasing power. So for Donald Trump to say, hey, these negative interest rates are a gift. Yeah. Well, what about uh, higher prices? Right. That's going to be the other side of that. We have to create inflation to give debtors a gift. And we, we, we do that at the expense of savers. But now we've destroyed the value of everybody's paycheck. So all the people who work for salary and wages now their paychecks have been diminished in value so that people who are in debt uh, can get a gift. So Trump needs to understand uh, that negative interest rates are, are a wealth transfer. But more importantly, by uh, distorting the free market and leading to less than optimal decisions and allocations of resources, negative interest rates are bad for the economy. So the overall economy is weakening, even if there are some people benefiting at the expense of others who are losing, everybody is a net loser because the people who suffer suffer more collectively than the people who gain gain because we are diminishing the economy. We're making it less efficient and less productive. And so we are lowering everybody's living standard collectively. Yes, some people's living standards may go up while others you know, go down, but the overall standard, if you just took the average, is going to be going down and negative interest rates are helping to drive that. But Donald Trump is basically trying to browbeat the Fed and back them into a corner where we're stuck with negative rates because Trump wants negative rates because, again, he thinks they're great. He thinks maybe negative rates are the key to his reelection, right? If we can just get rates low enough uh, that we can put a lot more juice into the economy and, and he can be reelected. In fact, I was listening on the Sunday shows. Steven Mnuchin was out there, Treasury Secretary, and he was talking about um, refinancing the national debt, right? That he's going to uh, refinance the debt because it's a great time to refinance debt because interest rates are at historic lows and this is great opportunity and this is going to be great for the American taxpayer. We're going to save the taxpayer all this money because we're going to refinance this debt. Well, first of all, if you wanted to save the taxpayer's money, don't go into debt. 
stop running up these big debts if you're concerned about saving the taxpayer money, right? No one in Washington gives a damn about the taxpayer. But putting that aside, um, how is it that this saves the taxpayer money? Well, obviously, if the government has to pay interest on the national debt, right? Well, the taxpayer has to cover the cost, right? That's, you know, the public pays for all government spending, including what it spends on interest uh, for the money it borrowed to spend in the past, right? That's why borrowing to spend costs taxpayers more than if the government just taxed them initially to cover the spending. Because when the government taxes you today to cover the spending, there is no interest. But if they borrow the money and tax you tomorrow, well, they have to tax you extra tomorrow because now they have to cover not only the cost of the uh, money they spent, but of the interest that they now owe because they borrowed the money instead of collecting it in taxes. And so then the taxpayer is now on the hook for the principal as well as the interest. But obviously, if we can refinance that debt, right, then the taxpayer is on the hook for a smaller payment, right? So that would be a great savings. And that's what Mnuchin is talking about. But how are we going to do that, right? Who is going to be dumb enough to buy those refinance bonds and lend money to the U.S. government for such a low rate for the next 10, 20, or 30 years? Pretty much nobody other than the Federal Reserve. See, the Federal Reserve has basically said, go out and spend as much as you want, borrow as much as you want. We got your back. We're just going to keep monetizing the debt. We're going to do an unlimited QE. So if Mnuchin is going to take advantage of the Fed's generosity with our purchasing power and is going to refinance the debt, the only buyer of those new low coupon bonds will be the Federal Reserve. So we're basically just going to be moving all this debt onto the balance sheet of the Fed, which means we're moving the cost to the American consumer by way of a destruction of his purchasing power. We're, we're, we're getting lower interest rates, but we're getting higher consumer prices. That's the trade-off, right? We're going to make inflation higher because we have to increase the money supply in order to refinance the debt. But now we replaced private sector capital with government printing press money. So now we have massive increase to money supply. Prices are going to go up. So whatever Mnuchin saves us in interest expense, we will more than lose that in higher prices for other goods and services that we buy, including a lot of goods and services that the government buys and bills us for. And of course, when the cost of living goes up, what's going to happen? All those government workers are going to want to get raises. And so now we're going to have to give the government workers a raise. Uh, and so who's going? it's not going to matter that we saved a little money on lower interest rates because the process of making that possible costs us a lot more money in other areas. You know, one story, too, I was tweeting about and I wanted to talk about it as a much better example of what to do. And this had to do with uh, Nor Norway, Norwegian Air, which, you know, they've had a lot of trouble. They're discount airline, but they've been in a lot of trouble. And, you know, the stock price was like 200 kroner a few years ago. Give you an idea. It's like four now, four or five kroner. So it's really gone down. And it went down a lot, too, since the COVID uh, crisis started. Um. And then, but what happened to uh, Norwegian Air is they just uh, did a, ma a major refinancing with their creditors, where their creditors agreed to swap all their debt for equity. And they got stock at one kroner a share, which was about a 75% discount to what the market price was. But basically, the uh, stockholders took a huge haircut, the equity holders, and the bondholders are now stockholders. 
And so the company now doesn't have any debt. And now why did they do that? Because the Norwegian government did say, look, we will help get a government loan, government guaranteed loan uh, for your airline. But we're only going to do that if you have the, the bondholders convert their debt into equity because we don't want this company loaded up with debt. We want it to have a good balance sheet because if we're going to loan money or guarantee a loan, we want to make sure there's good collateral and we don't want to have all this other debt encumbering the airline. So we're willing to bail out the airline provided that the airline is debt free and we're not really bailing out uh, the investors. And so what happens is the investors take a huge haircut. They don't lose everything. They still have a small piece of the, of the pie, uh, but they've been massively diluted. And now the creditors, well, they've lost something too because they've gone from bondholders where they were guaranteed to get their money back and get an interest payment. And now they're stockholders where they're now running the risk of the airline going bankrupt. And now they're they're no longer creditors. They're now uh, equity investors. But you know the company is in much better shape now. And, and so the government basically knew to at least, look, if we're going to bail you out, you're going to you know go through a bankruptcy first, and then we're going to bail out the, the recapitalized entity with new owners. We're not going to bail out the management that ran the company into the ground and didn't have enough rainy day funds. Uh, you know We want to bail out the new management that takes over a, a well-capitalized company that no longer has any debt. Hopefully, this is the last time you hear this ad, because with Chime Checking Account, Features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts. Or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. That's chime.com slash goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. And the irony of it is, after this was done, they probably didn't even need the government ballot. They probably could have gone out and borrowed the money on their own uh, once they did this. But, you know, uh, the government basically, you know, forced this to happen. But this is the way if the government's going to get involved at all. Right. Which I still don't think it should. But if the government's going to get involved at all, that's the way to do it. The way they did it in Norway, not the way we're doing it here. What are we doing? Are we forcing any equity holders to take any haircuts? No. We, are we forcing any bondholders to convert to stock? No, we're just showering money on the airlines. Here, here you go, right? And they're just as indebted now as they were before. In fact, maybe even more so to the extent that the government loans the airlines more money without having them clean up their balance sheets first. We're just piling more debt on top of airlines that are already overly leveraged. 
So we're making the situation worse. And of course, what um, Norwegian Airlines announced is, look, they're going to dramatically reduce their 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 planes. They're going to have fewer planes flying. They're going to return to profitability. Obviously, there's going to be layoffs. They can't keep everybody on board if they're going to shrink the airline, if they're going to have fewer planes flying around. They don't need as many people flying them and maintaining them. But the airline will be economically viable, right? And then they can repay the loans and the Norwegian taxpayers uh, won't be on the hook for a loss. But in the meantime, the airline is still flying. See, the customers can still travel by air. You know, and and the U.S. government made it out like, oh, if we don't shower these airlines with money now, they're just all going to go out of business and no one's going to take their place. And then nobody's going to be able to fly because there's going to be no more airlines. And we're all going to have to take Amtrak. Right. Because all the airlines are going to go bankrupt. None of that would have happened. Right. That was the industry trying to scare the public into backing the politicians for supporting a bailout of investors and banks. Right under the guise that it's a bailout for the, the flying public. Anyway, I want to just finish up today's podcast, though, talking about Bitcoin because we actually had the Bitcoin halving. We finally halved the rewards that the miners get. And this was uh, everybody was celebrating and cheering this event on and, you know, been buying into this for months and months and months because, you know, once the halving happens, Bitcoin is going to be much more valuable because the supply is going to be reduced. And that's what I keep hearing. The supply is going to go down. It's cut in half. The supply is not cut in half. What's cut in half is the rate of increase in the supply. So the supply is still going to go up. In fact, it's still going up now. It's just not going up uh, as fast as it was going up before the halving. But people say, well, even that means if the supply is growing more slowly, then that's still good for the price of Bitcoin. Well, that assumes that the demand continues to grow. But what happens if the demand shrinks, which is what I think is going to happen? What happens if you had a lot of extra demand before the halving because a lot of people wanted to get in because they were convinced once the halving happened that Bitcoin price would go way up. And so they wanted to make sure and load up on Bitcoin before the halving because it would get more expensive after the halving. So whatever you wanted to buy, you better buy it before the halving. And in fact, buy even more than you need because then you can sell it after the halving at a profit, right? Well, now we get to the halving, and who's left to buy? Nobody. Everybody's already bought. You just got a bunch of people who were looking to profit from the halving who want to sell. And in fact, as I expected, as I said on my last podcast, that they may not have bought the rumor, sell the fact. They might have sold on the rumor of the fact, and that's exactly what they did, because even though the halving didn't happen until today, Tuesday, uh, the real break, I think, in Bitcoin... Uh, was on the week over the weekend, was it Saturday or Sunday. And all of a sudden, Bitcoin in about, I don't know, five minutes fell almost 2,000. It went from about 10,000 down to almost 8,000 in just like, you know, five minutes, five, 10 minutes collapsed. It immediately bounced back to around 9,000. As I'm recording this now, it's 88 and change. But we got that big sell-off uh, leading up to the, to the halving. And of course, by the time the halving happened today, it was a yawn. Are really, uh, it had no impact on the price, but we did get a big sell-off uh, leading up to the halving because I think the people who were speculating were worried if they waited for the halving itself, the price might have dropped. And so they they front-ran the halving and they decided to sell in advance, which is something I thought might have happened. And I talked about it on the last podcast and that's exactly what did happen. But now I think you still have a lot of guys who bought in front of the halving 
who were intending on selling at a higher price after the halving and may have to settle for whatever price they can get. I think a lot of disappointed Bitcoin speculators are going to be selling and there's another leg down that that initial 2000 point drop dollar drop was the beginning uh, of a bigger move. Uh, we barely got above 10,000. I mean, we got to like 10,100. There's so much resistance up there, even with all the hype uh, of the having, we couldn't even really sustain a move above 10,000 going into the having. Uh, we got that big sell off. Now we did get yesterday the Paul Tudor Jones interview on CNBC, which I said, I think I thought was another catalyst uh, to make Bitcoin go up and that maybe if he was not positive on Bitcoin, it would end up being a negative. And what happened was the Bitcoin rallied sharply. Uh, it started a few hours before Tudor Jones was going to be on CBC. And I, and I watched the rally. It was a sharp rally. And as soon as Paul Tudor Jones started to talk, that's when the rally peaked. The absolute price of Bitcoin, it was over 9,000. Forget where it was. 91, 9,200, but it peaked just in the middle or as he started to talk and it sold off as he was talking. And by the time he finished, about half the gain had been gone. So it was clear that a lot of Bitcoin people were trying to trade uh, Paul Tudor Jones. They knew he was going to come on. They expected him to talk positively about Bitcoin. And so they wanted to use it as a trading opportunity to buy the rumor of John Paul Tudor Jones and sell the fact as he spoke. And that's exactly what happened. And you can actually see that trade uh, play out in real time, uh, you know, just perfectly. But I think it really was just, you know, a, a, a symbol of what's happening on a broader scale with the having. It's a much bigger buy the rumor, sell the fact. Uh, and so it's not playing out in as short a time span. It will take place over a longer period of time. But just to talk a little bit about what Paul Tudor Jones said, because he didn't give a glowing endorsement of Bitcoin by any means. Uh, he did admit that he thinks he has 1% of his portfolio in Bitcoin. And he thinks it could be a little more, that it, it it's it's no more than 2%. It might only be 1%, but he's not really sure, right? He didn't know exactly. But clearly, if he's only putting 1% to 2% of his portfolio in it, he regards it as extremely speculative, right? I don't know what percent of Paul Tudor Jones portfolio is gold, but I'd be willing to bet it's at least 10 times as high as his uh, Bitcoin uh, uh, allocation. And I think the reason that he's keeping the allocation so low is because he realizes there's very good probability that Bitcoin's going down and he's going to end up losing money on that position. And so he wants to lose money on a small position because you could overcome that. Now, he did leave the window open, the possibility that Bitcoin could be his best performing asset, that in this environment of massive inflation and money printing, that Bitcoin really could take off. And since he's so confident there's going to be inflation and a rush into gold, and I agree with him on that, uh, he just thinks that Bitcoin might be the fastest horse in the race. And so why not bet a little money on gold, on, on Bitcoin? Because if gold goes up because of inflation, maybe Bitcoin will go up a whole lot more. So let me throw 1% uh, of my portfolio into Bitcoin uh, just in case. And that's, I think, the position he took, which is not a, uh, a big position. Because after all, most of the people who own Bitcoin today, the vast majority, probably have a lot more than 1% of their net worth in Bitcoin. I mean, I would say that most of these Bitcoin fanatics, their entire net worth 
It could be in Bitcoin. I know that guy, Anthony Pompliano. I get into some wars with him on Twitter once in a while, otherwise known as Pomp. You know, he's talked about the fact that half of his net worth, and I think he's got a pretty decent net worth, but half of it is in Bitcoin, right? Well, you got all these Bitcoiners that are so excited about John uh, Paul Tudor Jones saying people should buy Bitcoin. Yes, with 1% of their portfolio. So if you've got 50% of your portfolio in Bitcoin, you're not following John Paul, uh, Paul, uh, uh, Paul uh, advice, uh, Paul Tudor Jones advice. Can you imagine if all the Bitcoin holders decided to follow uh, uh, Tudor Jones advice? Right? Imagine, right? They'd have to sell 90% of their Bitcoin, right? There would be a crash in the Bitcoin market. If everybody who owns Bitcoin went to follow uh, that advice, the market would crash. Now, I know people are going to say, well, but what if everybody else in the world just decides to follow Tudor Jones and put 1% of their net worth in? If that happens, then, well, I'm going to make a fortune uh, keeping half of my net worth in there, which is true. But the odds of that actually happening are very slim. That's why uh, uh, that's a 1% allocation. Because if you lose 1% of your portfolio and you're a good trader and you're making money on other things, and I'm sure uh, Jones is going to make a lot of money uh, on his gold positions, whatever they may be. And maybe he's got some gold stocks. I think he'll make so much money there. Blowing 1% on a, on a Bitcoin gamble is going to be no big deal. But if you've got half your net worth in Bitcoin and you lose, you lose that, uh, you may not recover, especially if you're one of these Bitcoiners that thinks gold is obsolete now and you own no gold. You own no silver. You've gone all in on, on Bitcoin. There's no way uh, uh, that, that Jones is going to do something like that, right? He's I, I, Absolutely. So th to say that, hey, this is the reason you should buy Bitcoin, because now a, a hedge fund manager who is speculating on inflation, first of all, Paul Tudor Jones is in the minority, right, of people who are looking for stagflation, right, that kind of agree with me. Right. There's a handful of us out there in uh, the econ economics. And there's some people, you know, you got Ray Dalio who says a lot of the same things that I do. So there's other big fund managers that are seeing stagflation. But there's not that many that even are worried about it. And if most of the people who aren't even worried about inflation now and who have seen no reason to get out of the dollar, if they become worried about inflation for the first time, and they really want to seek out exposure, a hedge, something like gold. What's the odds, right? That they're gonna are they gonna go for gold or are they gonna go for Bitcoin? If they don't own anything right now and they're they're managing institutional money, they're conservative by nature, they move slowly, and all of a sudden, for the first time, they're worried and they want a hedge. Are they gonna pick something like gold that has real intrinsic value that's been a, a store of value for thousands of years? Or cryptocurrency that was that's 10 years old and they have no idea what it's ever going to be worth because it has no current intrinsic value. Are they going to gamble on Bitcoin or are they going to play it safe with gold? Right. Obviously, gold is their next move. I mean, Jones already has a bunch of gold. He already has probably a bunch of gold stocks. All right, I'm going to take a flyer on Bitcoin. And who knows how long he's going to be in this Bitcoin position. You know, once this thing really starts to fall, he might cut his losses. He might get out when he's down 20, 30%. He may not ride the thing all the way down to zero. So who knows how long he's going to be there. Uh, but just because he may have a position now, uh, this is not some big endorsement. This is 
one guy who's in the fringe kind of of the hedge fund work world acknowledging that he's doing something extremely speculative by taking a flyer on Bitcoin, but he has a feeling that it's going to work out because he thinks that we're going to have all this inflation and gold's going to go up. And so people are going to be looking for inflation hedges. I think he's wrong. You know, and I heard people tell me, hey, Peter, look, it's just 1%. Why don't you put 1% of your net worth in Bitcoin? And, you know, I'd rather put another 1% in junior mining stocks. I mean, if I'm going to take a big gamble, because that's what uh, Paul Tudor Jones said. He thought that the upside in Bitcoin was greater than the upside in gold. So he thought there was more potential. Now, I don't think he appreciates the downside risk. I mean, he does. Uh, but I think if you weigh the upside potential relative to the risk, I don't think Bitcoin is a better risk reward dynamic. Now, maybe if you think the upside potential is a million or something crazy like that, then you may have come to that conclusion. I just don't think there's that much upside uh, relative to all the downside. Yes, could could Bitcoin end up going up more than gold for a period of time? It could, but I don't think it's worth the gamble uh, that it might when I think the odds are uh, that it won't. But getting back to these, uh, you know, the mainstream guys, so are they going to take a, a chance? I mean, even uh, Jones admitted on the CNBC interview that gold has a long history and a long track record and it's proven. And Bitcoin is the new kid on the block. It's very risky. It's unproven. And so even the guy that owns both, right, has very different views of gold versus Bitcoin. One is a conservative store of value and one is a flyer, right, that he's taking a shot on. As more people in the mainstream finally decide that they got a hedge and there's inflation, they're going to choose gold. They're not going to go from nothing to Bitcoin, right? They're going to go to gold before they potentially take a shot at Bitcoin and then only with a small amount of money. But of course, if Bitcoin has already collapsed by then, uh, then far fewer uh, investors are going to be uh, pressured to go in it. Because I think right now when people see the big gains, hey, why did you miss out on that? Why didn't you get in? But once Bitcoin really starts to fall, uh, then it's the people who got in that that feel like idiots. And the people who avoided it, uh, it can look like the heroes because they didn't fall for it. And that's when you get the real big uh, PR problem for Bitcoin, right? When you have all these horror stories, not a bunch of get rich stories where high school kids took their bar mitzvah money and became millionaires because they bought Bitcoin. Then you're going to hear stories about people who went broke buying Bitcoin because they invested a lot more than bar mitzvah money, right? They took, they took their house money. Uh, they borrowed money and bought in at Bitcoin at a much, much higher price. They got in at the end of the bubble or, you know, as the bubble was deflating rather than early on, right, before, you know, much air even got into it. Uh, and so once B uh, Bitcoin has that really negative PR problem, it can't shake it. And then that's it. Uh, then the party is over. But anyway, we're again, 8,800 and change now. We'll see what happens tomorrow. Uh, ben Bernanke is talking. So the markets are probably not Ben. Tomorrow, Jay Powell is talking. You know, we had a few other Fed guys out today, but of course, none of them uh, have the status as the chairman himself. So the markets are really going to be lo looking to what he has to say, potentially about negative rates. Uh, I am still looking for a big break in the dollar. I haven't had it yet. Still looking for a big move up in the price of gold. I think it's getting ready to happen. Uh, hasn't happened yet, uh, but I think it is going to happen any day. But anyway, I will be back again uh, with another one or two uh, podcasts later in the week uh, as the markets develop. Again, we, we went off on a very, very weak note. Uh, for the stock market. So I think we could be in for some interesting action in all the markets uh, in the days and weeks ahead.